This is Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, and also Mark 15, 1 through 15. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And then chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We've been in the Gospel of Mark since uh, January 2021. We've gone verse by verse through it. We're nearing the end. And the question in Mark, like the question, if you have to choose one, what's going on, what's this all about is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Chapter one, he's going around the towns of uh, greater Galilee, speaking with authority, performing healing miracles, and people are saying, what's going on? What, who is this? What's this authority? What's happening? Exactly halfway through the gospel, exactly, Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Same question in this passage that we read right at the end. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, asks Jesus directly, 
are you the Christ? It's actually exactly the same words that Peter spoke in Mark 8, except for this one has a question mark on it. Are you the Christ? And at this moment, if you've been with us and if you've listened along to the text today, Peter's outside in the courtyard about to deny, we jumped a little ahead last week, about to deny that he even knows the man who he said is the anointed of God. And then there's this other man inside, surrounded by his own court, acting as judge, asking this, are you the Christ question, with contempt, already knowing what answer he's going to believe in the end. Who is Jesus? Actually, there's never a sermon that can be preached if it's properly a sermon, ever, that doesn't have this question at its core, ever. It's what we do every week. Uh, whether, whether we're in the Hebrew Scriptures or in the New Testament, uh, throughout our service, who is Jesus? This question is being asked and hopefully answered, and definitely at this table that culminates every one of our services. That question has to be answered in order to come. Who is he? The New Testament writers present Jesus as both God and man. It's very interesting. In the two passages that we read, right at the end of chapter 14 and right at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is uh, before a council that is really concerned with the question, who are you religiously? Who are you before God? Who does God say that you are? And then we turn a corner immediately to a Roman tribunal, or really just a governor who represents all that authority, who could not care less about the religious aspects of that question, who is Jesus? Could not care less. All he cares about is who are you as a man, and do people follow you, and do you set yourself up as a king, and are you a rival to Rome? But they're both asking the question, who are you? Who does God say you are? Who does man say that you are? And the New Testament writers both refer to Jesus as both God and man, both probably the chapters that are clearest about this in the New Testament are Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to go there today. That's just for, that's a way homer. Both God and man in one person. Completely God, completely man. That is to say, he's God's way to man. And he's man's way to God. And there's no other way where that intersection can happen except through this man. Everybody around in this moment is saying, who is he? So first, to the people who ask the religious question, who are you before God? This council of chief priests, elders, and scribes are seeking some official validation for their desire to destroy Jesus. And that's been said several times in the Gospel of Mark, all the way back in chapter 3 initially, and more recently in chapter 11. They're looking for an excuse, any reason to destroy Jesus, and the stated reason is fear. These are men of authority, of religious authority, and they see a growing crowd, at least for a while, going after him. Can we destroy him now, please? But they can't find like an official reason that they can record for destroying them. People are bringing charges against them. They don't agree. They're a little bit stuck. So what the high priest does is he says, just for a second, we really care about the religious question, but we know the quickest way to get you killed is to have you answer the question that Rome really cares about. We're going to ask, are you the Christ? 
now. That's a, that's a title that's packed with both political and religious significance. Christ means anointed one, Messiah in Hebrew, king. The long-awaited king from the line of David that was expected to usher in the next great golden age of Israel, a greater one than David, who was great as could be in the Hebrew memory. Are you that king? Now, Jesus says yes. And soon after, they're spitting in his face and they're pummeling him with their fists. But his yes isn't actually why they do that. Now, stay with me here. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. That's not why they scream blasphemy, tear their clothes, and start to spit at him. It's the yes and, yes and, that gets them really crazy. Here's why. The Israelites, or the, the Jews at that period, as they were more commonly known, they didn't really see the Messiah as a divine figure. They thought he was going to be another human king, which he was in the person of Jesus, just like David was. David wasn't divine. He wasn't like the second person of the Trinity in their theology. He was just this long-awaited king. So it wasn't blasphemy to say you are the Christ. It's the yes, I am the Christ and that gets them. And you really need to look at these things that Jesus says. It's in your bulletin on page three and four. This part's on page three. I'm looking at, I'm looking at verse 62. Jesus said, I am, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let me read that again. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That phrase, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite title. It's an exalted title that he uses to refer to himself. No one else in the Gospel of Mark refers to him as the Son of Man, but he refers to himself that way a lot. And that is a, is a phrase, Son of Man, that doesn't just mean like child of a human being. It actually doesn't mean that at all in this context. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet, at the end of that book, in chapter seven, there is a vision of one who was presented before God. And it said, he was like a son of man. And he came before Almighty God. Daniel says, the ancient of days. Almighty God. And this son of man comes before him. And, and God says to him, I'm going to have every nation and language and tribe serve you. And you are going to rule all the ends of the earth. And you're going to be enthroned on the clouds. It's this very strange, mystic, but unmistakably divine picture. Jesus is saying, I am the Christ, but not only that, I am that divine one who God the Father is going to give all authority to rule you all and everyone else who's ever lived with authority. I know I just gave you a lot, but you need that to understand why the crucifixion happened. The religious answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, I am divine. Yeah, I'm the long-awaited Messiah, but I'm more I am the one who's going to be seated at the right hand of God for all eternity. And they tear their clothes, and they spit on his face, and they beat him with their fists for it. If this is true, just, just sympathize with these people beating Jesus, if you can, for a moment. If this is true, 
the Son of Man who will sit on the divine throne and govern everything for all eternity, would he really come as a rabbi bound like this, having had all of his followers run away under our power right now? Would we be able to strike his cheek with our fist and cover his face with our saliva and stand to keep doing it? Of course he's not, but he is. And that's what the gospel writer Mark is doing. He's saying, however else you answer the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the king, I'm divine, and I would allow creatures to spit in my face. This is a revelation of God himself. Did you know this about God? You know, there's little pictures that I think we get of this in our society. And I'll just take one that was pretty popular for a while, about nine, ten years ago. Pope Francis, early in his papacy, there was this moment where, I forget where he was, but he was in public. There was a very severely disfigured man. Uh, one of you doctors can tell me what, what exactly the condition was. But he looked something like an ancient leper would have looked. It wasn't leprosy, but it was a contagious, deforming disease. He was hard to look at. And Pope Francis spotted him from the crowd, I mean, clothed in all white with golden crosses, in his Pope mobile, and got out of his exalted place and went down to this disfigured man and held him and kissed him on the cheek. And it captured people's imagination, even if you're not Catholic, and even if you don't think much of the Pope. There's something here that smells like Jesus, and we kind of haven't seen it in a long time from the public face of Christianity. It was just for a moment. Jesus coming like this is a stumbling block. It's startling. But it doesn't leave you the same if you really get what's going on. But that doesn't even go quite far enough, the Pope Francis picture. We actually have to go a little bit farther. Did you ever see the show Undercover Boss? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like a boss, like an executive of some kind, of some big company, spends some time with an entry-level employee and is in disguise so the you know, employee doesn't really know that the boss is there and like, lets himself be affected a little bit. Let's imagine if like, Pope Francis like, took off all the garb and hung out with the leper and like learned of his life a little bit for just a little, a little while. This is not a new concept. There's something very deep in our society's imagination. Henry V has a scene, you know, from, from Shakespeare, where King Henry dresses up like one of the common soldiers to learn about their experience. Going back even farther back before the New, Test New Testament, um, the Odyssey by Homer has a picture like this, where Odysseus comes back and he's not recognized. However else we answer the question, who is God and who is Jesus? He's one who comes to us like this, willing to get this near. But how do they answer the question? The religious elites, they answer the question this, this way. Who is Jesus? He's a fool. He's a schismatic rabbi. He's a troublemaker. He's a blasphemer. He's actually, though, the one who is eternally adored in heaven. And he says so. And this is why he's condemned by the religious community for blasphemy. And they bind him, and they wait till morning, and they take him to the Romans, and that's the second passage. And that's on page four. And I'll end with this. 
first thing in the morning, he's passed on to the Roman governor Pilate. And uh, these religious authorities, the high priests, the chief priests, they try to convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to Rome and deserves death. Now, Pilate kind of smells something fishy going on, and we do not want to act like Pilate is an innocent here. Actually, we know from other parallel sources, non-biblical sources from the first century, that he was an absolute monster. There should not be a whole lot of sympathy for Pilate, as if he's one who was just persuaded by the Jews around him, and he really wanted, the last thing he wanted was to see an innocent die. No. He did not care about one innocent Jew dying. But he did want to stop riots, and he did, he had no affection for the religious leaders of Israel. So he kind of smelled like something fishy here. And so he asks, is this true? Jesus says, you have said so, if you see there in the passage in verse 2. Basically a non-answer. Basically saying, I'm not going to participate in this, in this process. This is an unhealthy trial. I'm just going to watch it happen quietly. And notice Pilate, twice, does not use the Jewish word for king or anointed one. He doesn't call Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. He says, king of the Jews, because that's the only thing he cares about. Are you the king of this people who we Romans know of as the Jews, who if they start a riot, I might lose my head. So I'm going to do everything I can to stop them from having an uprising. If you think you're their king, then you and me got problems. Who is this as a leader of men? Is he really any kind of threat to Rome? That's all Rome cared about. So Pilate does this, and if you haven't heard this story, this is astounding. He basically says, look, I know you guys have this cute little festival called Passover, and to keep you from getting all that excited during this festival, what I do every year is I release one prisoner to you, just one, to keep you calm, to keep you from rioting. And so he says, maybe it should be this king of the Jews. He didn't really see any threat from this guy. If these people were really following him, they wouldn't be screaming, crucify him. Let me release somebody to you. What should we do with this one you call king? Crucify him, they scream. But the crowd then stirred up to request the release of an actual murderer, an actual person who deserved death. They let go instead. Let me end like this, folks. Um, this is a passage of great contrasts. On the one hand, you have Peter, who is outside denying that he's ever known Jesus, and you have Jesus inside with his integrity, even though it will cost him his life. There's a contrast. You have a contrast between Caiaphas, the high priest, who is blaspheming God by calling God a blasphemer. Irony of ironies, right? And Jesus, the true high priest, who's bearing with it in love. You have Jesus being completely alone and silent versus everyone else joining to condemn him and growing louder and louder. You have Jesus being judged and beaten while speaking of his identity of the eternal divine judge as the eternal divine judge. But this is the biggest contrast of all, and don't miss this. Christ and Barabbas. Do you see it? Christ and Barabbas. Barabbas is a murderer deserving death. Jesus is the innocent author of life who dies instead 
so that the murderer can go free. Let me ask you, what would you expect of a powerful person who you tried to murder? More to the point, what would you expect from a power, powerful person whose loved one you murdered? A few chapters later, there is a scene, excuse me, a few books later in Acts chapter 3, after the resurrection and the descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, where Peter and John are preaching the gospel in public. And they describe this scene because a lot of the people listening to them were there when they were screaming, crucify him, let Barabbas go free. And they put it in these words, you released a murderer and killed the author of life. That's verbatim, that's holy scripture. That's the irony that, that the gospel writer and writer of Acts, Luke, draws out. You killed the author of life. So many of our movies are about vengeance. My parents' generation, it was Death Wish with Charles Bronson. Um, the one sticks with me the most is The Crow. Anybody remember The Crow, where uh, the guy and his fiance are killed and he comes back to life, and they just take on everybody. It's all our favorite vengeance movies. Taken with Liam Neeson about 15 years ago is kind of like this. I don't know what the newest one is, but how many of them come back after an actual or attempted murder plot and say, I bless you. I bless you. That's exactly what Peter and John say in Acts chapter 3. They go right from, you let a murderer go in order to murder the author of life. And you know what you need to do? Not come to trial and be, be murdered back. Actually, all you got to do is turn, and fascinatingly, they say, turn to him and be refreshed. Like hit refresh on your screen when it's kind of loading and sticking forever. I like to think of it that way. Just come and have, have God, come back to the one who you've offended beyond measure, and just have him love and change you. That's it. Jesus did this on purpose to take the place, not just of the murderer who went free, but of everybody there who screamed, crucify him. He's coming to get you, but not to put you in court to murder you back, but to set you free, to bring you into his presence, and to refresh you. The Son of Man, the Son of God, came to embody and accomplish by his death the cleansing of our sin, to be gracious to you and me and to any sinner who would come to him. This is why he came. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.